everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am your host, Stephen Buja, and joining me once again, as always, Amy Thomason. Amy, I feel like it has been a while since we have spoken together. How are you doing? Uh, things are a little wild. Uh, my drama kids are performing their play tomorrow, which is always stressful. And my daughter, who is fine, let me preface this with she's okay, uh, discovered last week that she has a heart condition that is now being treated, had to spend an overnight in hospital that we weren't expecting. So okay. a little stressful there, a little stressful there. Sounds like you've been through the ringer. I have, but I have to give a very quick shout out to one of our listeners sure. from Ontario. Oh, international. Very international. And um, he wrote in about, and I want to say his name is Michael, but I think it's Matthew. So I dropped the ball there. But he wrote in, and like myself, he had quite an issue with your uh, apartment I, episode. I, I, you know and what? I have never heard anyone criticize that movie so much. All right. You know what? I, I'm going to stand by my shellacking of the apartment for one, for one very good reason. If it weren't for the apartment, I do not think we would be having this conversation right now because you raked me across the coals for my views on that and other, and other movies. So I am grateful to it for that. I am standing by my, my opinion. It has not aged. Uh, particularly well. However, I will definitely say that it has aged much better than the movie we are talking about this week. You like that segue right there? The film we are discussing this week is the 1930-1931 Best Picture winner, Cimarron, which is one of uh, the few Westerns that has ever won the illustrious award. And Amy, had you ever seen this movie before? Absolutely not. I really didn't know anything about it, except that it was a book based on an Edna Ferber novel. Yes, uh, Edna and Ferber. For some who... reason, I actually have familiarity with Edna Ferber novels. So, yes, uh, she wrote Giants and Showboat. Showboat. Showboat, which later became basically the first modern American musical. So that was like. It literally was as dated as that musical is, and it is dated, mm. groundbreaking. It was the first time that there were songs specifically written for a show rather than popular songs of the day, just kind of and girls and you know, chorus girls singing them. And then Giant, which dealt with a lot of themes that I will bring up later because there's definitely connecting themes within Cimarron and Giant and Showboat. Things okay. they all kind of deal with, which like are pretty interesting. Family, and, I'm and as dated as they seem, we're actually quite progressive. Yes, which is uh, it's an interesting place that Cimarron finds itself in, both being at the forefront of the times and as we look at look back on it 80 years later, wildly behind them as well. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Cimarron was directed by Wesley Ruggles, written by Howard Estabrook, Louis Sarecki, based on the novel of the same name by Edna Ferber. It's starring Richard Dix, Irene Dunn, Estelle Taylor, Nance O'Neill, and William Collier Jr., among many others. And uh, first, first thing I want to say is that, you know what we are missing in modern movies? A dramatist personae. I like I, a dramatist Isn't it nice to just look on the screen and go, this is the person who is going to be playing this role. Here's what they look like, just so you can remember. It's a, that alone right there 
dates the movie. This is at the very beginning. They show all the actors on all the characters they're going to be playing so you can play along at home, uh, as it were. It's so dated that, because this is, by all accounts, a very long movie. And long movies, that back then, they took a lot of time to create. That You had uh, many moving pieces, then you simply had to keep it all in, all together. So it was funny that we are in 1931. Talking Films had just debuted two or three years earlier. And so we have to like we have to hold the hand of the audience. The audience is not really adjusted to it in the way that we are. And it's fascinating approaching a film like this from the modern perspective and not just how it treats its story subject, but how it actually tells its story. And like this dramatist persona at the beginning is a very very small look at a short period of time when this was acceptable and because we hadn't quite really mastered the art of film storytelling in a long form when it when it involves many chapters and over what 30 or 40 years of time where characters change and uh you know characters get older and, and die it's like i was immediately struck by by that by that part of the movie i don't i don't know how i don't know how you feel about uh, a cast of characters basically being handed the handing the playbill for the movie as you walk in. It but, makes it seem like it's going to be this big important event. Yeah, and that's what it was, and that's the thing. And movies were a big important event, and not a lot of movies do that. The only other, I mean, the only movie I can think about, especially an Oscar winner, is they did it in The Sting, but The Sting is a throwback to another time, right. so it it works because The Sting's not a quote unquote modern modern movie. Right, it's a, it's actually a throwback like, to the to the nineteen thirties. And Gone with the Wind didn't have the pictures of the actual characters, but it was very like, here's all the people at Tara. Here's all the people in Atlanta. Here's all these people. And it was like, it, they had every single character in the story in that little quote-unquote program that they show. But right. in this case, yeah, it was the only other time I remember seeing, here's the face, here's a little clip of them in the movie. And this didn't even have clips of them in the movie. It was just them like smiling and kind of mugging. Right. It was. It was. It was. Uh. It was like candid. It was like candid promotional it shots was for them. Cute. It was. It was kind of cute. It was. It was kind of cute. But as you say, it does make it seem like this is an important event because all right, this is 1930, 1931. The stock market just just crashed. Where in the in the in the pits, going to the movies is a luxury, and so I think. Rather than you know, like okay, we're just gonna th- you're, we're gonna throw Infinity War at you without, with none of you having seen any of the other twenty movies. I think this is their way of being like, okay, here's this big long tail. You have earned the right to see this movie. This is important. You you probably don't get out all that much to the to the moving pictures, was, as it were. It was, it's a big it deal. Was, it's a big it, deal. So enjoy it. Thirties. That's what people wanted to see. They didn't want a reminder that their lives sucked. Come on. No, no. They wanted they wanted a reminder of the time of times when things were better and things were the way they were uh, supposed to be. And that is a great thing for the thirties. Really problematic for the two thousand tens. And we're going to take a short break, come back, discuss the Oscars, and discuss all of that. I'm Mary Bishop from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, and I've just finished putting in a lot of work on MGM's fine motion picture Cimarron. So I feel qualified to tell you that Cimarron is going to be far and away the picture of the year. 
That land rush scene that follows the film you just saw is one of the truly great all-time movie experiences. In fact, it's so big and exciting and action-packed that we didn't want to spoil the picture for you by showing it ahead of time. But perhaps you're wondering why all this talk about Cimarron at a Quaker sales meeting. Well, it's because the Quaker Oats April promotion is going to be a movie ticket offer. And the movie is going to be the year's greatest Cimarron. Cimarron won Best Picture at the 4th Academy Awards, uh, which were hosted on November 10th of 1931. They were in honor of films that re were released from October 1930 to October 1931. Very different than what we have nowadays in which the uh, Academy Awards take place in February or March, depending. Uh, it was nominated for a total of seven Oscars, winning three of them. Amy, what were those wins? Best Art Direction, Best Adapted Screenplay, and yes. of course... Yes, or, or in this case, it was Outstanding Production was the official title of the Oscar it won. And uh, at the time, the Best Picture or Outstanding Production, did not go to any one producer. It went to, in fact, the studio that produ uh, produced the movie. In this case, this was RKO. Uh, this was the first of two Academy Awards it would win, the next being for Best Years of Our Lives some 17 years later. Uh, this was also the first Western to win Best Picture, uh, and the only one to win for 59 years. As such, there have been three, possibly four, if you stretch the definition. Do you know what they are? Unforgiven. Mm -hmm. People are mad at it because it beat Goodfellas. Oh, Dances with Wolves. And, it's a, oh, it's a stretch. Came out in the 2000s. No Country, no Country for, for Old Men. Yes. Oh, so much better than some of the other ones that you do. I was like, that <laughs> you know, one. the thing with the movie and the, and the, and the people. But the guy, Gary. yeah. Unforgiven is obviously the one off the top of my head. Yes, No Country for yeah, Old Men. Yeah, which, you know, it's a new neo-noir western, but whatever. Un Un Unforgiven kind of put the kibosh on westerns yeah, as, a, as, a, as an old genre, which we talk about in our Unforgiven episode. No one wears a cowboy hat, so it's hard to remember that one as a well, quote, western. That's what, western yeah, we, we but listen to both our episodes on No Country for Old Men and Unforgiven, uh, two of my favorite movies, two of my favorite Best Picture winners. And I, I am very much looking forward to discussing Dances with Wolves with you. It was on the other night. I forgot how much I like the music to that movie. And I'll leave it, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, Cimarron was also nominated for Best Actor, Richard Dix. Best Director, Wesley Ruggles. Best Actress, Irene Dunn. And Best Cinematography, which at the time, the stuff they did was pretty impressive. But, but of course... You won, you know, in order to win, someone else must lose. There were other movies nominated that year. What were they? Skippy. Jackie Cooper, nominated at nine years old. He was the youngest, backed at, youngest nominee for Best Actor for, I think, 50 or 60 years. Uh, a long time. And uh, Norman... Tor Torog, who was the best director, was the youngest best director nominee until Damien Chazelle came in and scooped it away. So, anyways, sorry, that's me. Traitor Horn, East, East Lynn, Lynn. Mm -hmm. and the front page, which is really the only one that I've kind of heard of, which 
was based on a play, which was on Broadway a couple years ago, and uh, was later remade into His Girl Friday. Oh, see, we all learn something new every day. Front page was the. Uh, did the character of Hildy was originally a guy, and then they changed it for the remake. Good. Well, well, well done, well done. Uh, the front page was, uh, of course, one of the many Howard Hughes-directed films at the time, Aviator, Leo, etc., etc. But, uh, so, 1930, this is uh, all pre-code films, very fun, can get away with a bit more, but the Academy got away with some glaring oversights because the Academy, is, you know, it does not necessarily have the best track record for knowing which movies will stand the test of time. And there were some movies that were released in 1931, and I was very surprised by this. Shocked. That have... I was shocked have, when I Yeah, that have left an impression on the pulp, pop culture landscape. What were some of them? M, directed by Fritz yep. Lang. City Lights. City Lights. One... I wrote down City... Motherfucking lights, because uh, it was a silent movie at the time, and I guess they were moving away from awarding silent pictures, despite having given it to Wings at the very first Academy Awards. But to not appreciate the simplicity and beauty of City Lights at the time, I feel is a crime, because City Lights, I, I think everyone can agree, is one of the greatest movies of all time. One of the greatest ending scenes of all time. Chaplin, uh, no, there's, there's no one like Chaplin. I don't think there will ever be anyone like Chaplin. And it, 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 it irks me that this movie was not nominated for Best Picture. Totally, totally ignored. Oh yeah, that's, that's going to that's gonna be on a, on a list for a, future, for a future subject. Trust me. A lot of these. And a lot of these. Uh, Frankenstein by James yep. Whale. In our country, when we think of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, we think of the James Whale version of Frankenstein. The flat, yeah, the flat, I mean, the flathead, the, the bolts, yeah, everything. It's uh, that's that's what the, we think. It's of. a brilliant uh, movie. If you got, if, if people, if you still have not seen the original Frankenstein, it's so it. good. Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Hello. What we think of when we think of Dracula is, is that that's where it yeah. came from. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Frederick March. The Public Enemy with yeah, I mean, James Cagney. Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson. The Champ with Wallace Beery. And Platinum Blonde, directed by Frank Capra and starring Gene Harlow. I mean, <laughs> what? That, that's the list of totally yeah. ignored. From movies from 1931. Shot. I guess when... For some reason, I think the classical age for us begins with maybe Citizen Kane and whatnot. We always forget about how very many great movies there were in the 30s, and this is this is just this is one year. Like they were doing some amazing stuff with the advent of sound before the initiative for the Hayes Code was put into place, and the artistic expression was tamped down a lot, and we got the more traditional 30s pictures but man there was there's some greatness here public enemy with james cagney I mean, is that is on. that i remember sopranos where tony's right. watching it i mean it's it's still so part of our culture even if you haven't seen the movie frankenstein when you think frankenstein that's what yeah. we think of 
because of this film. That's how important right. it was. Was Public Enemy, is that Top of the World, Ma? Or is that... Uh, no, that's, that's White Heat. Heat. This is the one where he takes the grapefruit and... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Because back in the 30s, you could take grapefruit. But at the end, his mother, it's he loves his mother, and his mother opens the door, and he just kind of falls forward because he's right. been killed. Oh. And he's got that great relationship with his mother. I mean... Cagney. Whew. Unappreciated. Massive. Yes, at his most James Cag like like the James Cagney movies, other than yes, Mikey. yes, okay. Yeah, the <laughs> and Bella the Goofy's Dracula, come on, man! It was a good year. That's what we're trying to say, people. It was a good year, but was Cimarron the best of that year? Stay tuned and find out. <laughs> and I want you to be happy all the way through. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most folks do not know what Cimarron is about. Amy, can you please enlighten them? It is about a man with the name of Yancey Cravat. And basically the settling of the West with his family and all the changes that kind of go through over time. Yeah, that's a very succinct description of the plot it's a it's not it's not a plot it's not a movie that is really about any one thing it's about all the things it's about the the westward expansion in the late 19th century beginning with the oklahoma land rush and ending just before the crash of the late 1920s like, like i think just shy of a few months actually yes. and all the changes that come to the quote-unquote wild west at the time um we're, we're gonna back up just slightly what is your history and familiarity with the western genre as a whole i haven't seen a whole lot to be honest it's not i have certain genres that i love and that i'll always see and then there's genres that i'm not super into the western used to be on my list of if it's a western i'm pretty much just not going to watch it because i have seen unforgiven which is on my top 100. I watched Stagecoach about a year ago, The Searchers. I tried to watch the ones that people were like, right. if you're going to watch a Western, you need to see The Searchers. You need to see Stagecoach because that's just what you do. Dances with Wolves, Django, I really, really liked. Uh, the hmm. Hateful Eight, I really liked. And I saw The New True Grit. There's also a movie that I saw called The Oxbow Incident, which I Right, yeah, based on the O. Henry, yeah. Very powerful movie and of course it has henry fonda being you know the the voice of morality yeah, so it's not one that i was ever really interested in but i think after seeing unforgiven that was kind of my introduction in, and now right. i i can actually sit and appreciate them it's very odd watching unforgiven first because that's like and this will be a, this is gonna be a super nerdy reference it's like reading Watchmen first without ever having read a comic book before mm -hmm. you miss out on exactly what the story is trying to deconstruct about the west i mean you yes. know the, i mean unforgiven is basically clint, East, clint eastwood demythologizing himself uh as the uh as the man with no name from the sergio leone films of the 1960s and going going all the way all the way back but it's um western it's been defined as the very american uh genre it's about uh, a single character usually a man who's going up against all the forces of anarchy and chaos around and 
bringing them to heel. And uh, none, no man, really uh, symbolizes that more than uh, Yancey Cravat. Yancey Cravat. Uh, which is a name I can't. I, I can't wrap my head around as some as first of all, first of all you have the last name Cravat, which is unfortunate enough already. But sure, you're southern. <laughs> I get it. But then to saddle the kid with Yancey, I feel I feel like I feel like that's one of those you're gonna you're gonna have to struggle your entire life. It's like Johnny Cash singing about being named Boy Sue. Named Sue. <laughs> like like you're like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to fight for every inch about that. Uh, it was played by played by Richard Dix, uh, and Richard Dix was a silent film actor. And we're at the period where there are still silent movies being made, like City Lights, but the talkies are clearly the way of the future, way of the future, way of the future. What just? How does Richard Dix's performance as Yancey, removing all of the uh, anachronistic stuff to it feel 85 years later. It feels like he is a former silent film star because the acting, the style of his acting, I feel bad saying it, but is so funny because he is so <laughs> over the top. His fate, first of all, he's this big guy and he has this great big head. And his yeah. facial expressions, he's using his eyebrows and his and his making his eyes all wide. And when he's making his speeches, like he's got the hands on his hip and he's waving his finger up over his head. And, you know, it does. If you put it on mute, it would look like he was in a silent film because he's so physical and so right. extreme with his. There's no subtlety there. And. I hadn't heard of his name, so I, of course, went to Internet Movie Database. I'm like, he has to have had a long career in silent film. And he did. And that's why he's not one of the big film stars that we remember now, is because that style of acting just doesn't translate well once that more subtle acting comes into play. But yeah. you can see that he was like a 1920s matinee idol, because he's big. and yeah, He's got that chin that you could like, yes. cut a man with. It's Yeah, absurd. and and he's so over the top, and that's why when we think of the 30s, we still think about Clark Gable and, you know, and Charles Lawton for as much, you know, chew, scene chewing as he does. is, so is He's subtle! <laughs> yeah. As, as the guy in Mutiny on the Bounty is like a subtle performance compared to Richard Dix as Yancey, Richard Dix as Yancey Cravat, that's yeah. enough. Yeah, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's yeah, I, I I do know what you're saying. What about but the rest of the everyone else, especially the the the, the female characters, they're they seem a lot more subtle. They do, which is why Irene Dunn remained Irene Dunn and went on to make movies that were bigger and more famous now, even if they weren't big Academy Award winning epics. She did all the movies with um, Cary Grant, so. Right. She she was more at the start of her career, and Richard Dix was more at the end. More at the end, yeah. It's just it's funny that the film, which is about the beginning and ending of an era, is also kind of playing this meta narrative where it's the beginning and ending of like of of an era of Hollywood, the silent, the silent, the silent pictures, 
onto the. Me and Norma Desmond would have played very well together. In oh, that, now that would be a fa- that'd be a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating uh, pair up. Um, okay, so we've we've established that this movie is very. At times, the characters are very big, we'll say. But there is one thing that definitely survives the test of time, and that is because it goes so big, and that is the opening sequence. It is the Oklahoma Land Rush, a scene you might remember from a small Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman movie, Far and Away. It may have Which been one of I the... worshipped that movie. Uh, I it's... worshipped that movie when I was in middle school. I owned the video. I had Ooh. the soundtrack. The VHS? Or the laser yes, disc. Yes, the VHS. Ooh, the VH. The, the soundtrack is actually very good. I will, I will, I will give you that. John Williams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a. It was a thrilling scene when Cruz and Kidman did it, especially Cruz's penchant for doing his own stunts. I have to say, the opening scene to this movie is astonishing because when you think about it, you're like, we did not have computers back then. There is a dude riding one of those ridiculous bicycles with the big wheels in yes, front and the little wheels and he and they're like he's he's actually doing that while all of these other people in carriages and horses and cars and god knows what are just running around them it's insane how how like amazing amazing practical effects can be like we so take them for granted i think it's why we still enjoy the shenanigans of Buster Keaton, the house falling down on him because he has to do that. He has to put his life on the line to balance on that ladder that's yes. you know on the it's on the back of the truck. The danger is real. It's it's um but it's first of, first of all it's it's thrilling. Yes. Second of all, how weird a way is this to parcel out land? Like seriously, we're just 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 go just run. Is it? Weird, or is it somehow so American? I was just about to say that it's such an American thing. Because athleticism and going out there, it is. because, And part of the reason why Western movies are Western movies is it's, it's that American ideal. It's such an archetype that even people like myself who are not huge fans of the West and that kind of masculinity and stuff, it still takes your breath away. Yeah, it it does. It does, and there's something there's something that it it could be just I am an American. Rough and unrefined. Yeah, like it's, like it, it gets in there. We're not Europeans would never do this. We do it because we're the land and we're at one with ourselves, and we've got the warrior spirit. And Europeans would be drinking tea and well, don't Euro- bring it. Well, their- Europeans have run. Europeans have run out of land. They don't know what this is all about. Like we can go and literally plant our flag where no white man has ever been before, yeah. and it's it's ours. We claim it. There's no history there. It's all we are. We are making history. Europe has thousands of years of history it has to contend with. And the we stuff can just was parceled do. out from the king. Those people didn't earn that land. They didn't go out and build yeah, they, a castle. They, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't. And from 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 the moment you're like from the moment, it's a great it's a great scene. Uh, you should all you should all check it out. And then we meet we meet Yancey, who's apparently just the coolest fucking guy in the world ever. Ever he he does everything. More on that later. And the next character, the first, next character we meet is Dixie Lee, whoo wee, which is another <laughs> another one of those great Southern names. And what is the first thing we learn about Dixie Lee and women in general? 
dames, you can't trust him. She tricks him out of that fancy plot of land that he was going for by playing and, the damsel card. You're like, oh, one, God. One of my favorite lines that made me laugh was when they said, you can't trust a woman with black stockings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What can and, you expect from a woman with black stockings? <gasps> I, I do declare. Whew. Oh, my. I'm getting the vapors. <laughs> getting the vapors. But... So, really, and I and think that's what... she was out there fighting for her land Yeah, anyway. she was doing it too. Sipping tea and all that, that she was out there, like, in her black stockings. Making, trying to, trying to, trying to take what's hers, because this is America, goddammit. And with, with the introduction of Dixie, that's where, for all the wonderful things the movie does, and there are some, there's some, like, great emotionally soaring movie, moments in the movie... It, you're reminded of how dated the film is because Dixie's a tramp and a harlot for reasons that are never made clear and only because the other women who are just as terrible don't like her. And there are all these little stereotypes, all these little, little bits that would have been fine for an audience in 1930 because whatever they're like they don't have to deal with any of these people but nowadays you watch and go oh oh no 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 uh so well first i mean we have to talk about isaiah isaiah, oh. i oh it's isaiah is the black servant to the cravats to uh yancey and his wife sabra sabra i said i Sabra. Sabra. Another, another ridiculous name. But I you have Isaiah, who is the worst example of the ah, shucks, yeah, yes, sir, master, sir. If you take a race and ethnicity class in college, they're going to be showing clips of this. <laughs> this is the clips that they're going to be showing you to study and analyze and write papers about. Right. It's horrendous the uh just just the blatant disregard for humanity that they 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 have in the character which is very odd because at the same time yancey is totally cool with isaiah just you know like basically isaiah kind of like stole away in in their in their yep. uh, wagon and i he, yancey's so cool with isaiah as as one is cool with i guess like a house a house cat sort of yeah he's and, like he's literally like their pet yeah and it's laugh at his little shenanigans oh 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 that all... isaiah that isaiah who's up on the lights who's like on the chandelier waving a fan so all the fancy white people can have some cool while they eat dinner and then he falls and oh that's just isaiah and there's this gross moment when the uh, the family is arriving in Oklahoma City or like the Oklahoma outpost, and you know Nancy calls over like, "Hey, check out that watermelon supply over there." And Isaiah's like, "Oh, I love me some Oklahoma." <laughs> You're like, I'm like, no. it's like, oh god, it's like I can feel like like college students are going to be protesting having to watch this movie in class because it's it like and like if if I'm thinking, you know what? They might actually be right because this movie is problematic as hell, and it doesn't stop there. It starts. It also goes with 
to uh, uh, Sabra. One more, one oh, more yeah, thing sure. on, on Isaiah before we move on. Sure. The scene that really was awful for me was when they're all getting dressed up to go to church because mm-hmm. there's going to be a meeting at the church, and he puts on his quote-unquote Sunday best, but it doesn't fit him right. right. And he's like strutting down the street, and all the people are kind of laughing at him, and Yancey Cravat is like, no, no, like let him wear his nice clothes. And he's like, I was going to dress up too. Y'all is all dressed up to go to your church. I'll dress up too. And it's just, oh, it's It's, so, so painful. And I don't even think he's allowed in. Don't they not let him in? Yeah, they they don't let him in. But I think Yancey tells him to guard the the, the printing press or or something like that. Like he's like he's placating a child. And it's it's that for me was the ultimate cringe. Yeah, that was good. Actually, actually, you know, I just I just. I just remember one other thing, that Isaiah is made the butt of all of these jokes and little, just little microaggressions. Like it's every everything about his character is terrible, and then he, his death scene. I was honestly devastated. I have this thing where like I cry like a baby when Wilson, the the volleyball in Castaway, is left. So I have this like there's this thing where I think it's. I feel emotional towards this sort of like loss you cannot explain this like it's not not a sacrifice it's just this senseless sort of longing I I, I it's it's hard to explain it but like th- think think Wilson and how you feel there and this is how I felt with Isaiah he is there's a there's a shootout because of course there's a shootout and he gets <laughs> he gets caught in the he gets caught in the crossfire and he dies crying for help unseen like just sort of like off just just off the sidewalk below He's like behind like, a, a barrel behind some barrels or something like that and i and for all of the horrible acting that the actor had to do he had to put up with he sells the shit out of that scene you you feel for him because like why the like and also you're like why the like this is so representative because like Isaiah's getting caught and all those these white people just fucking shoot. fucking shit up again like like we do, and it's it's tragic and people don't even notice that he's dead until much later when he brings up it's it's awful and they're all just like that's sad and then that's it they all move on and then they just and, move on and it's not even I mean it's dramatic if you watch it but they don't have the music or the anything like that because his character is such a like throwaway character right that it's like it's almost like why did he even have to die you know what i mean just like write him out of the movie but he dies and you see his little arm i mean it's such 1931 acting you see his little arm go up right. and he's oh it's 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 so over it's such silent film acting that again if it but it is sad and as much as you're laughing and cringing you still feel something emotionally yeah, it's. Uh, like, what did he ever do? Right, what did he ever do? But that, but that's the thing about the movie is that sometimes it will do something so exquisite, and maybe you could call it emotionally manipulative. But it does it so well that you don't actually care, and you're like, "Wow, I'm actually I." Regardless of why I'm feeling this, I'm feeling this, and so thank you, movie. But then it goes, and we see uh, Sabra, who just hates. Indians, sorry, sorry, hates native hates Native Americans for 
uh, reasons. No, no good reason. Just because she's uh, she's white and they aren't, and so therefore they're terrible. She also hates Dixie Lee, who who Dixie Lee, whose only crime is having been given a really bad hand in life. Yet all of the fancy ladies with their fancy hats and their high accents like this. Oh, that woman. Oh, God. She was terrible. Well, I can't remember her name, but she was the worst. She was, they're, they're, worst. Honestly, all the women in this movie are the worst. And I, I'm sorry, audience. They're like a they're, bunch of middle school girls. It's like are. mean girls in the Wild West. It's like, I wish there was more it's to Dixie Jane. Lee. They oh they slut shame they they you know awesome. native native shame they just, everything they just they're the they're terrible harpies and you're like oh god this is these are the people we sent west like oh of course it was because we were founded by the pilgrims and they were kicked out of England like oh but it's just men, keep... but all the men are awesome all the men are awesome and that's it all the white men are awesome all the white Christian men are awesome because you have uh, Saul who's the traveling Jewish merchant and we are not allowed to forget that he is Jewish all the time, but the and white then there's guys. that other guy who I don't remember his name. Oh, the that uh, other like, guy who at the beginning they were like harassing him and like throwing alcohol down his throat and he just keeps like begging for help and for them to stop. And that was all. That was all. That was that was the, that was okay. The, yeah, and then there's Mr. Levy, right? Who owns the store? I think I think I think we're talking about the same guy. Unless there was another. I don't. Anyway, but. That scene was painful for me, watching that guy get that foreign guy get bullied. But right. at the end, when that that snotty woman, that woman who was the worst, always makes the comments of like, "Oh, my ancestor was at the signing of the Declaration of Independence," oh, right. and you hear this every time she's on screen. And so at the end of the movie, she says it to the Jewish man, and the Jewish man's like, "Oh, because one of my ancestors, Moses, wrote the Ten Commandments." <laughs> at him and i'm like oh boom i was like yeah bitch like that was my favorite line of the whole movie (laughs) i paused it because i had to like write it down verbatim for the podcast but that that was my moment of triumph but it's the women are awful yet yet saber is also very modern, and she had to deal with her own pile of shit from her husband. She did, so. and, and yeah, and because Yancy is also awful. And let's talk about Yancy now. Yancy Cravat, who is, uh, he is the great white hope. He is the savior. He is all that us white guys wish we could be. Let's let's go let's go down his his resume. Uh, let's see, he is a printer. He can work the printing press. He's also the editor of the paper, a lawyer. Apparently, one of the quickest draws in the West, very good shot, can can shoot a dude's ear off and say, Psh, it ain't nothing, it's just a little friendly shooting, never hurt anybody. Uh, he is an orator. He becomes the priest, I think, just because he's well-spoken and educated. At one point, he joins Theodore okay. Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, so he's a soldier. <laughs> And he, uh, oh, he, def- he has a, uh, he defends the plight of the native born, the, na- the native tribes, and of Dixie Lee. He returns 
the day he returns from abandoning his wife for five years to go play cowboy with With Roosevelt. no letters. He does not write her a letter. He is just gone for five years. Gone for five years. He comes, he comes back. He defends Dixie Lee, who we and everyone everyone gossips that maybe they had a thing, but there's no never any real evidence. Defends Dixie Dixie Lee from the gaggle of shrieking harpies who want Dixie Lee out of town because one of whom is his wife. One of whom is his wife. He's, he abandoned for five years. He like I don't know like it. This guy would be great if he weren't so terrible then they even they even play up his the fact that he just like i got the wanderlust dear i gotta go to the new land oh, rush and wild. help that's what cimarron means wild, wild. woo um, wild. He, he, so, as much as in that scene, you hate the wife because the wife's a judgmental shrew at the same time, I'm like, if my husband's literally just left me and my kid in the Wild West for five years without a word and then came back and then, like, defended a prostitute that everybody thought he was sleeping with in front of me, I get why she'd be a little mad. Right. I, I, I get that, too. But at the same time, she's so terrible about it because I we have not seen any, any evidence that Dixie is, in fact, a prostitute. She's just... Not she just doesn't play by the rules of proper lady Southern society. But we were supposed to assume she was because it's 1931 and they can't like really say that she's a prostitute. No, but they could. They could. They could say painted ladies. They could. They could say that she. They could say that she was back then. The Hays Code hadn't been hadn't hadn't come out. I just I just think it was just bad because I'm like I'm I'm on Dixie's the entire movie. I am on Dixie's side no matter what. I like. I want a movie about Dixie. I don't know what the uh, 1960 version starring Glenn Ford, starring Glenn Ford and Ann Baxter was uh, was about, but I hope they just focus more on Dixie and 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 honestly and honestly uh, Sabra and we were able to maybe they were telling us that despite all of this this good stuff that Yancey does, he's actually a He's kind of a jerk because he just up and leaves and abandons his wife and family for uh, for a couple of years, and then and then just just and then we get a quick uh, on screen caption saying, and then Wanderlust took Yancey again, and he hasn't been heard of in seventeen years. You're like, holy shit! I one of one of the questions I had for you was, Amy, would you put up with this crap? No. From your husband, from any man. No. And this was, and, and I think some of the things that bothered me the most. Okay, so he leaves, and she basically kind of has to assume he's dead. Because, again, no. no – and this is a guy who likes to write and likes to talk. So oh, yeah. what's your deal? Send your wife a letter. But that she – and, again, this was back in the day. She runs the printing press. Yeah, she's like she, a, she, she runs the like Oklahoma Wigwam. She's a Catherine Graham of the, like, 18-whatevers. So she runs the printing press. She's writing it. She's running it. She's holding the fort down. She's a working mother of two children. And then he comes back, at which point I'd be like, where the hell were you for the past five years? I thought you were dead. Then he sort of pushes her out of the way. He takes over the printing press and starts saying when she wants things to go into the newspaper, he's like, as long as any does. As long as my name is on that, is on that ledger. I decide what goes in the newspaper, not you. 
that scene, that's when I would have thrown something at his head to be like, you left for five years and now you're going to come back and stake your claim as the man and tell me how to edit yeah. my newspaper. Right. I've been doing this. Screw you, buddy. Screw you. And then, and then, which I, yeah. at the time, at the time, at the time it's romantic, but she's, you know, she still hasn't, you know, when we're in the twenties now, she hasn't changed the, the letterhead. It still says editor. Editor-in-chief Yancey Cravat. I'm like, this, I know what you're trying to do. It's like, she's holding a torch for him because he's he's Yancey Cravat and that's a man you hold a torch for. But God damn it, woman. You've been doing all of this shit. You were the one who stayed. And it is very, very hard. It's It takes so much more strength to stay than it is to leave. It's hard in 2017 to be a single mother. Right. To be a working single mother. Imagine back in the you didn't even get the vote until eight years before the the end of this movie. Congresswoman, so she doesn't need him. She doesn't need doesn't need him so at all. And yet, I was like, Saber is a saint for putting up with this crap. Right. Yeah. But uh, at the she same time, Saber's also. I disagree with her, like politically. Oh god. I yeah. admire her. Yeah. Well, for, you know, she's that abandoned repeatedly by this guy that's not just one time he's gone for five years and he comes back and all of a sudden he stays he leaves again yeah he leaves again he leaves again off screen for yeah the rest of rest of his life the rest of the movie for the yeah the rest of the movie i'm like wait i thought this was about yancey what is what is what is happening but you know she has in the tradition of the grand southern ladies She's the she's Scarlett O'Hara, precursor just this you know i will never be hungry again don't need no man all that, but it's still infuriating because at the same time she's also the worst. Her daughter Donna, oh my God, Donna's the worst. Sorry, sorry, Saber, you're 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 the second worst. Donna's the worst because she just comes out and says like, "I'm gonna marry a rich man. Why do I need any?" It's like, oh, Christ, yep. what is no, going on in this movie? Specifically, I'm going to marry the richest white. It's- Man, that is the actual line. I am going to marry the richest white man who we have all just seen in the movie, and he's like 19 yeah, years old. So and she old. marries him. You yeah. see them at the end together. Yeah. Oh, it, you, it's so like it's the film is at war with itself because you have Sabra who is holding down the fort, who is doing this. She is she is planting her flag in a world that is hostile to women. And that's great, and she's making a success of it. She, you know, builds the wigwam. That's the the the, the paper they have up it's from. Cringy name. It's such a it's such a cringy name. Oh my god. But she's she's doing all this, and it's all all this progress, and yet all these things around her, and including her, are also conspiring to just keep the status quo. To be like to keep to keep saying, you know, this is great, but wouldn't it be really, really good if. We just let the white guys be in charge or remain in charge, and that's fine. And like, even if they leave, that's that's just white guys gonna do what white guys gonna do, cause you know we do that sometimes. We can't be tied down. Yeah, we can't be tied down. Sometimes we have to leave for four and a half to five months and go hike twenty one hundred miles for reasons. You know, I don't know. I'm speaking from experience. Don't mind me. <laughs> don't mind me. <laughs> I have to do that twice. I do that twice and it ends badly, but that's fine. Um, so yeah, but then at the end, we come to the ending, and there's a sort of reverse dramatist persona where they, where Sabra, now an old woman, 
shows off her family and her son has married a married a native girl and that has gotten helped me get over my prejudice and here's my daughter donna and married she introduces to the- her like at this big congressional thing like it's not just like oh she showed her the neighbor she had her stand up and right it's 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 again it's also another very weird moment that is very much of the 1930s and that era but it's also a topic that edna ferber touches on in all three of the works of hers that i'm aware of showboat came out in the 1920s that deals with interracial marriage Mm -hmm. giant deals with the prejudices against mexicans and their son marries a mexican woman and has a mixed race child this deals with the same kind of thing so it is very interesting because again shobo also tons of cringy stereotypes of black people but again supports those characters as well and shows them as like good people and things so it's just something i find interesting that that was kind of a common thread and all of her things. And everybody go see the movie Giant. It really is an excellent film. One of my favorites. Same scene. And it ends, I mean, the ending shot of that movie, spoiler alert, is the two children. There's the white grandchild and the mixed race grandchild kind of next to each other. And that's about Texas and Mexico. So yeah. just a little, just kind of something interesting that I noted. So she had them. a, so she had a, she had a theme. She definitely mm-hmm. had in her own mind, a, a social consciousness. Mm. Yeah. It's, I suppose, and not knowing the works of Edna Ferber, but it sounds like she was a woman writing under her own name in the twenty, in the turn of the century, tens, the teens mm-hmm. and 20s. Probably hard to speak a political message like that, get printed without having to sort of toe the party line in terms of, well, we got you can have this progressive you know these progressive voices this progressive Mm -hmm. theme but you gotta you gotta marry it in something that's safe for our white readers or viewers in this case and her women as much as it seems like oh they support their man they're also very strong Mm -hmm. again not to get too much into giant but like Mm -hmm. elizabeth taylor's character goes over to a group of men at one point is like oh so what are you guys talking about politics oh so like what topics are you discussing and they're like oh ha 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 let the men folks talk about politics and she calls them a bunch of cage uh cavemen <laughs> so which is such a great scene seriously go on <laughs> go see oh, the movie. But, but this is the it's the same kind of thing where there's that moving forward and back and moving forward and back right and the, search, the search for progress is never it's, it's not complete. perfect, but I was still overall impressed with with the movie, much more than just fitting into stereotypes. It it did try to say a little something. Right. It's just, it's it's Way very it's very hard to get it's very hard to like piece through get that message through a lot of its antics because the characters are at times so broad and absurd you just want to throttle them. But then at, at the end there's Edna, uh, not Edna, oof. Sabra is visiting, I think it's a new oil pipeline or mm-hmm. oil factory in, in Oklahoma. And there's this terrible accident and, and there's this old man, this, this old, uh, you know, stranger, this old uh, hobo who goes by the name of Yancey. 
saves 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 a bunch of dudes, and you're like, oh, that's where he's been for the last. Because, because of course he does. Because of course he's abandoned his wife, his children, now his grandchildren. Hasn't seen him in twenty years, and is five miles away from them the entire goddamn time. But regardless of that, whatever we say about that, there is a great line that Yancey says right before he dies, or maybe, or maybe it was Sabra. I forget. It's hide me in your love, and I'm like, I, I love that. That's that is a beautiful line. That is spoken with a lifetime of remorse and also, but also of happiness. That I, and and now I'm sad I can't remember who says it because it's beautiful. And then I go, oh right, this movie does have some stuff going for it. It also has so much going against it too. (laughs) And it's 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 hard to reconcile the two. It's hard to reconcile the two now, and it it it's tough. Uh, Like for the time, like. You would like I would I would have just I would have grabbed a bunch of nickels. I assume that's how much movies cost back then, and just gone to see this movie all the time because of air conditioning, first of all, and second of all, that the gold rush scene is amazing. Uh, not the gold rush, the land rush scene is amazing at the beginning, and it's like it. it I almost feel like this would be like nothing I've ever seen before. And during the the early days of the academy, they were rewarding things like you've never seen anything like this here planes flying in the sky it's wings like oh my god this is this is astounding i've never seen this yeah the spectacle alone is a reason is reason enough to go because it really it hold it holds up it does from a technical level like the sound is very crisp i know i know cravat is he's swinging for the he's swinging for the back row here in literally everything he he says but you know dick richard dicks like he like i would see I, i see why this guy is a big star it's got it has all the hallmarks and trappings of a Hollywood film back then, where it's more product than it is story. But we're going to slip some story in there, but also make it safe and kind of like, oh, don't we feel good about our our lot for the for the white folks? Now, uh, does that mean that Cimarron should have won Best Picture that year? Amy, your thoughts. This was one of those situations that I really think back in the day, I probably would have voted for it mm-hmm. for all those reasons that we just said. Nowadays, not at all. No. But it's only because I know that Frankenstein became Frankenstein. I know the public enemy became the public enemy. But back then, it would have been like, oh, that's a genre movie or whatever. Like, that's not important. Cimarron's important because especially back then when you needed that inspiration, I really think I would have voted for it back then, especially compared to the nominees. Nowadays, not at all. None of those movies would have even been nominated. It would have been off the other list. It would have been. Great movies not nominated. M and all those movies. Yeah. It's 1930s. We're just starting the recession of the Depression. And we need to be reminded, and the white folks need to be reminded of how far we've come, sort of what we have done. And this is a tribute to Westward Expansion for all of its Mm -hmm. good and for all of its ills that that came about. Uh, Narrow, the focus is narrowed through the lens of the white experience. And at the time, that was the only experience that really mattered in America because all the rest were tamped down or silent or 
non-existent. And, and so at the time, yes, I probably would have voted for Cimarron too. It's uh, grand, spectacular. It's got this epic, decades-spanning romance. It touches on issues. It's got a thrilling gunfight uh, in the middle. It's got the land rush scene at the beginning. Romance, heartache, death, despair. It's got. It has everything you might want. And a woman becomes a congresswoman at the end of the movie. And a woman that's becomes a congresswoman. Yeah, very that's... progressive. It was not just she sits at home pining away for her husband. She runs the business. She She's doing things. Helping. That, that alone for 1931 is shocking. Right. Right. But for 2018. So in, in its way, progressive. Yes. yes way. But for 2018, it's, there's so much that's hard to overlook that you can't, you can't, <laughs> You can't say that this movie is maybe like maybe maybe this movie is not even good. Maybe like maybe that's it. And when you look at the other movies that came out, like City Lights, Frankenstein, Dracula, you go, what are what is happening? Why were none of these there? Academy, you definitely got it wrong. And as we've noticed, Academy gets it wrong a lot. And is that the Academy's fault? No, it's really it's really time's fault. I think just time will time and society will. We will determine what films survive the ages, and a, better movies from 1930 and 31 survive that uh, much better than Cimarron, which, for all of its progress, is also very outdated, very stereotypical, very problematic in a way that I think we cannot fully justify these days. Uh, maybe someone could take another stab at it and and put put a little more nuance in, but I think I, I think it's its problems are too great to overcome. I think. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I would be curious to go ahead and watch the Glenn Ford version, though, made in nineteen sixty. Yeah, that would be a, a much different uh, experience, but if. Folks, if you have seen the Glenn Ford version of Cimarron, do let us know. You can write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail.com and find us on social media. Next week, we are going to be examining one of the all-time greatest films, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, the best foreign language winner from 1949, I believe. Uh, it should be an, an interesting conversation about Italy, post-World War II, and the movement known as the Italian neorealism, which became very influential on films just sort of for the rest of time. A warm and fuzzy look at a man's relationship with his son as they get to enjoy some time traveling around the city of Rome. Oh, see? She makes it sound so great. It's not, it's not that fun, people. But do watch it. One of the great ones. We should all see it before we die. Looking forward to discussing it with Amy here. Amy, where can folks find you? You can message us on our Facebook page because that made me super happy. I liked getting into my little conversation and saying that at least one of us likes the movie The Apartment last week. So please write back, everybody. If you would like and to, then... and if you would like to, uh, <laughs> if you'd like to come to my side on the great department debate of. 2017 2018 please let me know as i need i need some friends here i'm feeling outnumbered outnumbered but where on twitter are you 
A. Thomason 11. All right. Thank you all for listening. It's been a great conversation with you, Amy. And until next time, we'll see you on the red carpet. Rough rider, no, you don't want nada. None of this, six gunning this, brother running this, buffalo soldier. Look, it's like I told you, any damsel that's in distress, be out of that dress when she meet Jim West. Rough neck, so go check the law on the vibe. Watch your step with flex and get a hole in your side. Swallow your pride, don't let your lip react. You don't wanna see my hand where my hip be at. With Artemis from the start of this, running the game. James West, taming the West, so remember the name. Now who you gonna call? Not the now who you gonna call? If you ever riff with people one of us, break out before you get bum rushed at the Wild Wild West. When I roll into the Wild Wild West. When I stroll into the Wild Wild West. When I bounce into the Wild Wild West.